Look, there are two readings, and let me explain why I've been doing this. Um, whilst we're looking at the book of Acts, the book of Acts is really standing on the, the foundation of so much of the Old Testament. And um, one of the promises in the 8th century, uh, the prophet Isaiah, very early on in his prophecy, as it's been edited and collected now for us, in chapter 2, which is on page uh, 567, if you're using the church Bibles, Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll just look at verses, well, we'll just read verses 1 to 5. And the reason I wanted two readings is to show you how what we're going to see in, for example, the church in Antioch is remarkable and extraordinary and wonderful, and yet it's consistent with that which God has promised. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, you'll see reference to the nations, which is Gentiles, that at last there's a prophecy coming where Isaiah says, well, actually the Lord through Isaiah says, one day there will come a time when Israel will really be who she was always meant to be, a blessing for all nations, which means Gentiles. So Isaiah <laughs> chapter 2 is a background. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations, Gentiles, shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And now we'll come to a passage this morning in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. And we'll read just a section about the church in Antioch. So Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 29, and that's found, again, if you're using the, the Church Bible, I think it's page 920, I believe, 920, Acts 11, verses 19 to 29. Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, or Greeks, spoke to them also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, 
with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to rescind relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Well, if you uh, were not with us last week, what I'm doing over three Sundays is asking a number of questions which I think are, are timely for us at Edinburgh North Church. As I said, we are in the process, uh, still early days, I should add, of searching for a new minister. And that's a, a timely opportunity to ask a lot of questions about ourselves, about our, our ministry here in Edinburgh, uh, about the kind of leader that we hope God would send to us. And I'm suggesting that the book of Acts, certainly from an overview perspective, has some answers to us, uh, answers for us as to what is the church supposed to be? What, what are we in business for, if I can put it uh, rather crassly like that? And I said uh, last Sunday that it's very much an overview. You, you know, you, you look at a painting in an art gallery, and if you stand back, you can see all of it, and you can, you can catch a lot. And of course, it is helpful every now and then to step very close, as long as the docent doesn't get scared when you're that close to the painting. And you can see the, the detailed brushstrokes. But it's also good to step back, and that's what we're doing here. Now, as I said, it, this is the second volume of Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the second volume, the Book of Acts. And in the Book of Acts, geography, place names, travel, is very, very important. Starting in Jerusalem, in chapter 1, but things aren't going to stay in Jerusalem. The gospel will travel to different places on the map, and, and places on the map are quite important. They, they matter. But even more significant than the places on the map are the people in those places. But in the book of Acts and in the whole New Testament, and actually even to this day, that's the rub. People. People who are different from one another. They have diverse nationalities, different ethnicities, different cultures, and, and different backgrounds. Now, sometimes we say, well, yeah, but people are basically the same the world over. Uh, I get that point. And so I would say, yes, but a little bit no. It's a lot more complicated than that. I mean, here's what I mean. Again, what we go from Luke's Gospel, which is describing and assuring his reader, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Even though he was rejected and crucified by his own people, God raised him from the dead. So Theophilus, the one to whom he addresses his Gospel, be assured of what you have been taught. In the book of Acts, the second volume, what he's doing is equally intending to assure his reader, and you and me, 
that even though Jesus is not physically in the world, he is still the saviour of the world. But if Jesus is the saviour of the world, how does he save different nationalities in the world? I mean, you'll see throughout the New Testament that there's this tension that runs, and it still runs today. Does the gospel have one thing to say to one group of people and another thing to say to other people groups? This is why Luke gives considerable attention to this church in Antioch, which is up the Mediterranean coast in present-day Syria. There are two Antiochs. This is Antioch, Syria. He gives a lot of attention to this church. And uh, we must look at this church too. Why? Well, by way of introduction, just to remind us about this church located in this city. I'm speaking, of course, of Edinburgh North Church and the city being Edinburgh. Edinburgh is, you don't need me to tell you this, but perhaps I can remind you of this. Edinburgh is a, is a multiracial, multicultural, multinational capital city. And that brings churches in Edinburgh uh, both opportunities, but also some challenges. I mean, for example, we say that the gospel is for all the world and for all the people in the world. But where the shoe pinches is always at the local church level. What would, and this would be a question I want to ask both today and next week, what would Edinburgh North Church start to look like Sunday by Sunday if the gospel actually does spread to different people within Edinburgh itself. I mean, people who are different from us culturally, racially, social, economically. Would we be grace-filled to handle both the opportunities that that might bring, but also some of the challenges so that's why I want to spend time uh, this morning in Acts, looking at this church in Antioch. It existed, this church, in the third most important city, Rome, Alexandria, and then Antioch. It, it's, it's a big place and a significant place. And in the story of the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church, Antioch is very, very important. And it's very important for us. So here's the first observation. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 21. As you let your eyes uh, sort of go over that section again, you'll see that here's the first observation. The church is attacked, but attacks never ultimately, never ultimately win. The church is always attacked, yes, and attacks are serious. But ultimately, attacks never win. Look down at verse 19, because the first thing that Luke says in verse 19 really makes us sit up, or it should at least. The church in Antioch is the consequence of persecution and scattering. Do you spot it there in verse 19? This refers to what we could read earlier in chapter 6, verse 7, to chapter 8, verse 3. The church in Jerusalem, whom we considered last week, experience great persecution. You might remember the story in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who was the first martyr. And consequently, Luke tells us in chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, that violence occurred against the church in Jerusalem. 
And the head man of that terror was a man named Saul. But running underneath what you see in this persecution is Jesus is still Lord. He is still sending out his apostles. He has poured out, he and the Father poured out the Spirit and the Gospel is advancing. Underneath even the attacks is God's sovereign purpose. Because you see, the knock-on effect of the persecution was that people fled. They fled Jerusalem. But if they fled, as they spread, the gospel spread. Chapter 8, verse 4, there's a ministry in Samaria, just as Jesus had commanded. Peter and John, the apostles, are sent by the Jerusalem church to minister, chapter 8, verse 14. The same Holy Spirit who fell upon the church in Jerusalem comes upon the Samarian Christians. And that's where you read the story of Philip and the Ethiopian court official, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was most likely a black African, by the way. He receives in chapter 8 the good news of Jesus, chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. So the reason why I give you this background is that before we even come to Antioch, what looks to be the body blow of persecution and scattering is nonetheless a pivot move from Jerusalem out to the places that Jesus commanded in chapter 1, verse 8. It's just as he had commanded. The Savior of the world, though he's not physically in the world, he's rescuing women and men in the world. Nothing is stopping Jesus. And that includes a man named Saul in what we could possibly call a series of unexpected events, chapter 9. The very man, the very man who's the top gun, if you will, in the persecution of the church, what happens to him? He's converted by the Lord Jesus himself. He meets the risen Christ. He's, he's commissioned. He's not even given a choice. I find that fascinating. Chapter 9, verses 15 to 16. He's commissioned by Christ. We'll come back to Saul in a moment or two. And one more crucial event takes place which will prepare us for understanding Antioch. In chapter 10, bear with me here. In chapter 10, the apostle Peter meets a Gentile named Cornelius. I say means, but the truth is Peter was driven by the Lord to minister to this non-Jewish man and his family, the Gentiles. A Gentile who was a centurion in the Italian regiment. In other words, he was an occupying military powerhouse himself. Jew meets Gentile. We often talk about uh, Cornelius' conversion, and that's true. But actually, Peter was converted. Peter was converted in his understanding of God's mercy. Christ will rescue non-Jewish women and men. Cornelius and his family, as I said, are converted in response to Peter's witness and explanation about Jesus, which is what Jesus had commanded. And like the church in Jerusalem, Cornelius and his household are filled with the Spirit and later on in chapter 11, when Peter explains, as he's back in Jerusalem, and he's explaining to the boys in Jerusalem why I went to a Gentile household, he describes what happens, including the falling of the Spirit upon Cornelius and his family, and the Jerusalem church leaders respond saying, 
in chapter 11, verse 18. So then, it's obvious, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So look, it's in this context that the gospel advances up to Antioch, as I said, along the Mediterranean coast, through the scattering by the persecution in connection with Stephen's death, the gospel spreads. To coin a phrase by C.S. Lewis when he's speaking about Aslan, remember he says, Aslan is on the move. Well, you could say the same thing. Jesus is on the move. We call it the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Spirit, but as I said last week, it's really the, the ministry and the Acts of the Son Lord Jesus as Savior of the world. The Gospel goes first to the Jews, as was the existing religion. But now, as we read in our passage from Acts chapter 11, men went from Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch, and they spoke to Greeks. They told these non-Jews the good news about the Lord Jesus, verse 20. And don't miss this. Right here in this major city of the Roman Empire, Jewish believers are testifying, witnessing about the Lord Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and coming judging of the world. They're speaking to these non-Jewish men, and presumably women as well, and underline this, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. These Jewish believers speaking to Greeks, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turn to the Lord. See, here's my point. Well, actually, it's Luke's point, I think. Persecution, hardship, is bad, it's hard, it's tearful, and it's real. But it cannot stop the gospel. Even racial and cultural differences cannot halt the gospel. As I said, suffering and attack are real and frightening. And we are living through a period where that is happening in the majority world. And that suffering is, is, is costly. Which is why Tertullian, a second century North African church leader, why he claimed the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's the first observation. Just by way of overview, the church is attacked, but attacks never ultimately win. But here's the second thing, again, looking at our passage now, verses 22 to 30. The church is strengthened by the grace of God. These Jews and Gentiles responded in verse 21 positively. But at, at the heart of their response is the hand of the Lord, verse 21. You see, it is the Lord who brings them to repentance and faith. Very much involved conversation, probably disagreement and scratching of heads. But ultimately, it's the Lord who brings women and men to himself. Another way of putting it is, it's the grace of God which worked among them. That's why this guy named Barnabas, a Jewish man, when he saw, because he was asked by the Jerusalem church to you know, check things out on behalf of them, what was going on in Antioch, when he saw the grace of God at work, he was delighted. This wonderful man, he's uh, a lovely man. His name, by the way, Barnabas, uh, means son of encouragement. It's 
which is intriguing when you think of a, a little boy that we knew <laughs> named Barnabas. Anyway, he, he probably will grow up to be a very encouraging young man. But this, this, this man, Barnabas, in the book of Acts, Luke's, Luke describes him in verse 24 as a, as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he saw the work of God, the grace of God at work in these people's lives, and he was delighted. He saw obvious signs of God's kindness and mercy to these people. Because you see, it, it's the grace of God which makes change happen. And look, look more closely at what we're, what we're reading here from Luke. You see, grace changes lives. And how does that come about? It's by, by grace-filled people taking risks for one another. Have you spotted this? Barnabas travels to Tarsus looking for one man about whom he's heard. You know that persecutor? You know the guy that was leading the, um, the death march for us? You know, he became a Christian. No way. Barnabas took a risk and said, I'm going to bring that guy now to Antioch. You know, you can see the guys in Jerusalem going, hey, you, want to, you want to give this one a, a bit of a pause, Barnabas. No, 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 trust me. Because I, I trust the grace of God in Saul's life. And Barnabas was willing to encourage another person's ministry. And from this work of grace, do you spot it? Came further works of grace. Both of them were there for a whole year teaching and strengthening the disciples there. You see, grace, which is about God's kindness to us in Christ, that strengthens a person's heart. And grace splendidly calls disciples to become imitators of Christ, or they, you know, they resemble Christ. And you spot that Luke tells us it's in Antioch that disciples, followers of Christ, are first called Christians. The word literally means of Christ, or belonging to Christ, or even like Christ. And grace, do you spot it, also produces compassion. Now, prophets from Jerusalem, tells us, including this guy named Agabus, spoke of an impending severe famine during the reign of Claudius, 41 to 54 AD. And actually, non-biblical records record that there were several famines uh, that took place. And notice that grace produces amongst these disciples in Antioch a generosity. A generosity toward the needs of others in Judea now, which is Jerusalem. And the Christians in Antioch received the grace of God and in return extended the grace of God to others. Grace moved their hearts as well as their financial giving. That's the second observation, that the church is strengthened by the grace of God. Thirdly, and I think I need you to, um, to jump ahead to chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 3. The church is a wonderfully diverse group of people. Even if this is very complicated, actually, it's rather messy, to be honest with you. The church is a wonderfully diverse people, even if this is complicated. Look down with me in chapter 13, just verse 1, for example. Luke gives us some names of those in Antioch. And the names he introduces us to suggest a wonderful diversity. Look closely for a moment. Okay, so Barnabas was a Jew, a Jewish man. Simeon 
probably also Jewish, may have actually been black. Lucius of Cyrene was from Libya in Africa. Malayan, most likely Jewish, had, he, was, he was an aristocrat. He had a family relationship with the royal household of Herod the Tetrarch. And then there was Saul of Tarsus, whom we later learn was a Pharisee under the tutelage of one of Judaism's prominent teachers. And he was, by his own confession, the chief of sinners because he attacked the church of Christians. Here's an extraordinary diversity in background, ethnicity and culture. Here's precisely what the Lord promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. When he gave him all those promises, he says, in addition, through you and your seed, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. And you see what's happening in Antioch? Just what Isaiah prophesied. That's why I read that passage to you. But if there was a wonderful diversity, it nevertheless made things very, very complicated. The church in Antioch was neither a Jewish church nor a Gentile church. But here arose the severe tension. The tension is this. How can Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in their Messiah, the Lord Jesus, how can they welcome non-Jewish Gentile Christians without fear of compromising their Jewish theology and culture? And equally, how can Gentile Christians be full participants of the church without feeling inferior to their Jewish brothers and sisters. In other words, how does a church handle pretty fundamental differences? Now, some of you will be aware, and perhaps you might remember our Bible overview, the crisis here in Antioch reached a fever pitch in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. In fact, some of the background to Paul's letter to the Galatians was probably what was happening here in Antioch. In other words, some... Jewish teachers were coming in and saying, look, this is great, you, you non-Jewish uh, non, non Gentiles, you become a Christian, that's, that's marvelous, but actually, you really do need to follow the Mosaic law. And you gentlemen, to put it indelicately, this is gonna be a little bit complicated for you boys. You know what I'm referring to, right? Okay, circumcision. You can see a lot of hands going up, going, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. And that caused huge disagreement. Even Peter got caught up in this battle. And it was only when the council in Jerusalem entered into the fray that eventually they were able to have a, a momentary theological and cultural peace, but it was messy. Fourthly and finally, the church, as we look in now, still chapter 13, verses 2 to 3, the church sends out people in the spirit with the gospel. See, by Acts 13, the epicenter of missionary activity had shifted, shifted away from Jerusalem, and now Antioch is the sending church. And you may be familiar with the book of Acts enough to know that the focus that Luke has been giving on Peter's ministry for these first 13 chapters now shifts to focus on Saul, who will be called Paul as he goes. Saul is his Jewish name, but in his ministry to Gentiles, non-Jews, he deliberately takes the Greek name Paul so as to reduce any initial cultural friction. That's why his name is changed. 
Notice in verse 2 of chapter 13, the church is worshiping the Lord and fasting. It's in this context the Holy Spirit leads and directs, set apart for me, says the Spirit. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Set apart for me for the work to which I have called them, namely Barnabas and Saul. And an important association really should catch our eye. Evangelistic strategy arises out of worship. Equally, worship always leads God's people to be outward looking. The two go together. Now, as I, as I conclude, let me try to do what I did last Sunday, which I hope was helpful. In other words, I want to try to, as we've had this sort of overview, I want to ask the question that we probably always want to ask. In other words, yeah, but what about us? What about me? It's not being narcissistic to ask that question. We, we depend here that the Lord Jesus is, is pastoring us. And one of the many ways he does that is through his word. Well, Lord Jesus, what do you want us to hear? Look, I'm only beginning to scratch the surface, but could I ask us to think at least about the following? First, in Edinburgh right now, Christian churches are not, are not facing immediate imprisonment or the need to resettle somewhere else because it's getting too hot for us. But there is indifference, isn't there? There is indifference. There's soft opposition. And there's increasing marginalization. You know, Graham, thank you for the way you prayed for, for young people. As it, he, he wasn't being alarmist, was he? We know that. You, you who are parents, you know this. And you know, it will happen at Christmas time when you invite uh, friends to, oh, whether, whether it be uh, activities that are put on uh, over the Christmas season, you try to invite friends, and you get that rejection. Oh, no, no thanks, I'm not interested. It can feel enormously discouraging. But look again at the book of Acts. If you want to be like the church in Acts, and I don't think we really, I'm not, I'm not sure we're supposed to be like that, at least grab the theological significance of what Luke is telling you. Don't give up. The Lord Jesus still rules. Read church history, and then prayerfully, maybe we should look for never-considered-before opportunities. If Jesus is working, even in the hard places, which would include, respectfully, Edinburgh, then what we need to ask is, Lord, you were working before us. How do we keep in step with what you're doing? Secondly, pray for our church culture to be grace-filled. My experience is that few churches ask what their culture is. Oh, they, they, they define their, their purpose statement, their vision statement, their ministry ambitions, but few actually say, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. what is our culture like? Our culture is not in what we officially say or print or put on our website. Our culture is the, the unspoken and assumed values expressed and practice. You see, a culture that prizes God's grace in Christ strives to extend grace to each other. And here's the thing, grace is the opposite of rules and judgmentalism. 
Grace is also, therefore, the antidote to fear and insecurity, which means that grace is far more than simply being nice to each other. There's actually a costliness when grace works in us, because grace actually calls me, calls you, calls us to share one another's burdens. And the thing I find about burdens <laughs> is that they're inconvenient and they're heavy, and they're not mine. But grace means I'm supposed to do this. And it means extending forgiveness. And I don't, I'm sure you've found this to be the case. I don't find forgiveness necessarily easy. And coping with one another's idiosyncrasies, as you're having to cope with me, <laughs> coping with one another's idiosyncrasies, coping with one another's brokenness and mess, that can be a challenge, time-consuming. But it's precisely in those situations that you will find the Lord Jesus giving you more grace. It will free you up to be the person you were always meant to be in him. Thirdly, we know stories about the past about churches that excluded particular races or nationalities because well, they were not our kind. Most of us in the UK, I think, are aware that apart from Pentecostal churches, most conservative, evangelical, Bible-preaching churches in the UK are comprised mainly of white, middle-class, university-educated people like me. Now, it may not be intentional, but due to, to giving off unnoticed signals to visitors, we're saying, you know, this is who we are. I hope you can feel comfortable and fit in. Some of it may have something to do with whom we train for ministry and then whom we appoint as ministers. And that isn't to point fingers at other people. Rather, I think what I'm asking is, are we willing, am I willing, to ask potentially hard questions here at Edinburgh North Church about our culture? Our welcome, our engagement within wider circles, not necessarily overseas, but right here in Edinburgh. Fourthly and finally, being ascending church, one of the many things I love about this church, in its DNA, Edinburgh North Church has always been ascending church, ascending out, and may it continue. Rejoice with our connection, with our mission partners overseas. I think we probably need more information. Sometimes I actually just need a map to know where these people are located. We need to hear more about these people so we can pray more. And pray that we'll be continuing to be a generous, outward-looking people. But pray, too, that we might be more intentional towards people and groups here in Edinburgh. Pray this arises not just because we have a, a, um, a strategy that we read from some book published by a very prominent, now deceased, famous pastor from New York City about how to reach the city, but out of our worship. And pray that our worship be outward-looking. You see, there's so much to see in Luke's account of the church in Antioch. But what matters most, I hope, for you and for me is that we see who the Lord Jesus continues to be as he, as he sends out, even in the hardest situations, his gospel. 
and how that grace that's in the gospel about him changes us and changes lives and how it can deal with the messiness of our, our being fallen people and it can lead to a wonderful privilege of being included in his purposes even in the difficult place where you and I live here in this, this marvelous city. Well, come with me then next week as we will look at the place that you would never really anticipate the church ever arriving, Rome itself. Amen.